Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. Today's show is going to focus on the rural economy. Broadly speaking, we're going to be joined here by Matt Clark. He's the rural economist with Terrain in just a moment. Then in segment two, Alan Bjerg, a senior vice president from the National Milk Producers Association, will be on us. That modernization federal milk marketing orders is moving forward. Alan will fill us in on what the dairy industry would like to see. And then in segment three, we're actually going to be talking to Matt Clark's former professor, Dr. Jim Minter, the director of the Center for Commercial Ag at Purdue, recently released their Ag Economy Barometer and it showed some gains here in this last month. And then finally, folks, we're going to close out today's program with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services taking a look at what is developing in this cattle market. And we've got some green on the screen today. We'll see if Dennis thinks that will stick around with us. But before we go much further, let's talk more broadly about this rural economy with Matt Clark. Matt, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Big news on the broad economy front this week, of course, Jerome Powell hiking interest rates 25 basis points. Matt, market didn't seem too surprised by that announcement. No, the 25 basis points was pretty well expected by most in the market. What was unexpected was the language that they didn't say. So previously in the minutes or or in the readout, they had always put in a further comment or further tightening as expected. The language there this time explicitly not there. So okay. see how that one goes. So with the language not being there, the market is interpreting it, Matt, as then now the Fed is open to a pause. Is that how we read this? Yeah, it doesn't mean that the Fed is done, but it does mean that it, that conversation is now on the table and it, they are expressing a potential that, hey, if the data comes in right, this could be the top, if the data comes in right. There's been a lot of pressure on the Fed to tamp down the rate hike increases because of the pressure it has put on these regional banks. Matt, is the Fed being moved by that particular scare in the market now and maybe taking their eye off the inflation fight? Or can they walk and chew gum at the same time? Yeah, I think they're trying to walk and chew gum at the same time. So the Fed's primary goals, of course, are to maintain maximum employment. That's your unemployment rates. Maintain stable prices. That's inflation. And then not a explicit goal, but a clear goal is financial health of all of the regional banks. So you, th- you think about that dynamic, they're going to have to kind of sidestep both carefully. That's so true. And the economic impact of this is being felt out in the countryside. Matt, Terrain, of course, you, you work all across the country, different ag producers. And I'm curious about what we've seen from the consumer perspective responding to these ag prices. On the beat side, I know we're seeing folks still spend big money for prime. Is that something we're seeing in other places in the ag economy? Yeah, it's interesting. You think about this whole period of inflation over the last really 12 months, a dollar just doesn't go as far as it used to go, right? There's a certain segment of of individuals that when inflation goes higher, it doesn't really infect them, right? They're still going to spend, they're still going to buy. There's a a much broader group like myself. We get to the end of the the grocery cart line and we say, we're paying what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that group, we're thinking a little more carefully about what we're spending. For example, Terrain has a wine economist. He's talked a lot about how that upper echelon of, of wine, the, the $50 plus bottles that I could never buy, that group, not impacted. Okay. But that middle group, you're starting to see trade downs in some of the wine prices. So maybe they're not buying a six, $10 bottle of wine, they're buying boxed wine or cheaper wine. Whether or not that'll play into things like beef, where sure, tons of demand on that prime side, high quality, always going to be that good, strong demand. What about the middle market of that? Do we see some trading down or, or purchasing less? Maybe it's trading down cuts. Maybe it's trading down quality. Mm-hmm. We'll see as, as we kind of wrap into this uncertain period of economic times. It, it is an uncertain period. That's a really good word to describe the current state of affairs. Matt, one of the things that I'm curious about, given your purview of nationwide rural economy, geographic distinction. So we've seen the grain row crops really thrive over the past year. How is that changing the rural health in Iowa, Nebraska versus California or the West? Sure. You think about that 2015, 2014 through 16, maybe be a better range where grain struggled. It was tough. California, 
that was some hey- heyday and the grapes and the tree fruits, the tree nuts. They did really, really well. That dynamic has started to reverse where, hey, recently we've seen cattle guys start to get some money back. We've seen corn guys, soybean guys start to get some money back. Whereas in California, we've seen it the, the opposite way with some of the great markets. Tree fruits and nuts have really struggled here the last couple of years. Thinking about that sector, the the specialty crop sector, the place where we really add a lot of value in agriculture, is the downturn happening domestically for consumers or is it the international trade aspect, Matt, that's suffering more? A little bit of both. A lot of those specialty crops are exported, not not including wine in that. So when they had the just terrible situation with port blockage, when they had just trucking shortages, that really hurt some of those markets, and that was difficult. You think about that the other way around, where beef, that, hey, that's mostly domestically consumed. A lot of that run-up and, and wealth that we saw kind of right after the pandemic, that really helped beef. That was, yeah. that was a good time for them. Unfortunately, the reverse for somebody like almonds, who about 80% of it's exported. Okay. All right. So we're seeing that divergence happen in the global economy. You mentioned trucking, labor. These are big concerns across rural economies. Matt, is there going to be any improvement in the next 12 months in the labor situation in rural America? Yeah. It's always funny. We we read these headlines of of unemployments at 3.5, 3.6, 3.7, and I always chuckle. Those are national numbers. And in most rural areas, we'd kill for those kind of labor pools to pull from because honestly, it's it's tighter in rural America. And some of that's demographics. A lot of it's just, if you think about where we've struggled on labor, where people have been cut recently, it's more the white collar. The blue collar side, particularly in rural America farming communities, it's going to be a struggle to find labor. It's a good point. The, the job losses we've heard of are you know, coders at Amazon, which it's tough to translate those folks into tractor drivers necessarily. Yeah. Is it going to get better though, Matt? I mean, the Fed's raising rates. That's supposed to tamp down the the labor picture. Does that free up some folks into rural America? Some on the margins, but the big driver in rural America is demographics. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a boat that's slow to turn and it, it takes a while to get it going in the right direction. So on the margin, yeah, we'll see some some improvement, but I still expect it to be tight for most rural America. Matt, you mentioned it's demographics. We saw during the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of urban dwellers rushed to rural areas. Is that trend reversing itself now? It's a little hard to, to pinpoint uh, a number. Okay. But generically, yeah, I th- I, I don't think that that trend is going to reverse the fortunes for a lot of rural areas. For some of the rural areas that are near metros, yeah, yeah, it could. I mean, it could really help some of those trends. But when you get into areas that are that are hours away from a large metro, I don't see that trend of of work from home specifically helping them a whole lot. It makes sense. It is just a long distance to cover out here in rural America. Folks, we've been talking with Matt Clark, the Rural Economic Analyst with Terrain. And Matt, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Folks, stay with us when AOA returns. Alan Bjerga, Senior Vice President of the National Milk Producers Federation, will be joining us. We'll talk through this proposed modernization of federal milk marketing orders. Stay here for more AOA right after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation, powered to perform. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 
There are a ton of social networking websites, but one stands apart for a very special reason. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. In the U.S., 22 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant, most of them for kidneys. If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, visit MatchingDonors.com, home of the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. MatchingDonors.com. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Our conversations continue this morning, and now our focus moves to the dairy industry. There is a press, a full court press, I should say, going on in the dairy industry to update and modernize federal milk marketing orders that help set the pricing for dairy producers throughout the system. Joining us now for an update on this issue is Alan Burga. He serves as Senior Vice President of Communications at the National Milk Producers Association. And Alan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. Before we get into what the dairy industry would like to see with this federal milk marketing order modernization, Alan, I'm wondering if we could take a step back and could you spend a minute or two just walk us through how milk gets priced once it comes off the cow and goes into the bulk tank there on that dairy farmer's operation? Well, I think that's a great step to take, Mike, because admittedly, this becomes a very arcane topic very fast, and it's of vital interest to dairy farmers, the dairy industry, and thus the general public. But the federal milk marketing order system itself is pretty complex, and it's helpful to conceptualize it by thinking about federal milk pricing as, as sort of being this exercise in determining what is the value of milk. And when you think about it, that's a tough thing to figure out because milk can can vary in its value depending on what it becomes, right? Milk comes out of a cow, it, it gets transported, but it might end up being sold to a consumer as fluid milk. It might be cheese, it might be butter, it could be whey put into a protein energy drink. It could be a lot of different things. And what the federal milk marketing order system is supposed to do, and, and this was the purpose it was set up in the 1930s, is to make sure that we have orderly milk markets that ensure that American consumers have a steady supply of fluid milk that we need to you know, help our, help our children grow and our country go. So, so we've been looking at a modernization of this program. Um, it really hasn't had a significant revamp since the year 2000. Obviously, a lot of things change in nearly a quarter century. And it involves a lot of adjustments to a lot of different formulas and a lot of different things, again, that make up of what is the value of this milk? And then how does that get expressed in the check that goes to a producer? Because a producer, you know, they're going to be selling their milk and their milk is going to go to a lot of different things. How do you come up with, with a fair way of making sure that value of milk goes to farmers in an equitable manner? So you have things like milk that is priced into components. Um, 
the price of milk being determined by what is the quality of milk, i.e. the amount of protein in it, the amount of milk solids, et cetera. And then you have this thing that's called the make allowance, which is a portion of that value that the processor is, is basically given credit to have added by turning it into cheese or butter or whatever product you have. So it may seem counterintuitive in some ways that, that there's different parts of this check going to different components of the industry. But once again, it's all part of this exercise of what is the value of milk and how do you ensure that that value is reflected in a way that consumers have the supply of milk they need and farmers have the orderly markets they need to operate successful businesses. All right. Well, that is a whole lot of levers that are going to need some adjustment. Alan, I'm hoping we can dive into it a little bit first from the dairy producer's perspective, the farmer's perspective. What are the updates they'd like to see in the milk ordering system in order to be more competitive or in line with where prices are today? Well, one of the things that, that farmers are, are really looking at is actually kind of a going back to the future. It's a return to what's called the higher of. Just to break this down, it, it has to do with, with a way to make the, the price of class one, which is predominantly fluid milk, to incentivize it in a way that there is adequate production for that relative to other products, again, like cheese or like butter. There has been a system in place where basically the class one fluid milk price for a farmer is derived from those other processed commodities. And there was a change made to that formula in 2018 that we found through the experience of the pandemic, because the pandemic taught us a lot and put a lot of momentum behind this process. The way that this is set up right now, the main risk when there's a, a, a strange event, like a black swan event, a pandemic, right now the farmer has a disproportionate amount of the risk compared to the processor. So we wanna go back and make those risks more equal. It makes it easier for a farmer to operate their business. So that's, that's one big thing. Alan, just so I can understand clearly what's going on here, the uh, the concern being that the farmers got the risk because they've got the milk and the processor in a COVID type situation can say we're not accepting any more milk. Is that the risk? Well, part of it is, is that prices get out of whack. Um, you know, when 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 the pandemic happened, there was a federal response that that basically shot up the price of cheese um, and and things started hitting records. Um, and and that's that messed with the formula. And, and that's all that's as deep as we need to get here. OK, because of what it did to that formula, the, the farmer has an unlimited downsized risk. The processor has a limited risk. We're trying to put that back into balance. Gotcha. All right. It's all about keeping these these things in balance. So that's issue one. We've got the make allowance that, that we'd like to see modernized. But of course, when you're opening this up, Alan, it's the chance to, to tweak a lot. What else would the dairy industry like to see? Well, frankly, to make this work, you have to have a lot of tweaks that sort of balance each other out. You know, one of the things that we've done is the National Milk Producers Federation. You know, we're the leading dairy organization in this country. We represent dairy cooperatives. That's about two thirds of all the milk produced in the United States. You know, it's nationwide. It's, it's farmers of every size. It's farmers in every region, all working together for a solution. We've had about two years of meetings, more than 150 meetings on this. And we've come up with a holistic look at the FMMO system to make sure that, that, that there's, there's, there's a path forward that, that everyone can, can buy, sign on to. You know, you talk about the make allowance. Um, we have an in, interim change to the make allowance that basically we would advocate until we have better data on this. Part of the problem of figuring out how much of this should be going to processing is that we don't have good data on this and, and we need to work in the farm bill for better data on this. In the meantime, we have this interim solution. Well, people can look at this as a zero sum game, right? A processor gets a bigger portion. Now the farmer gets less. But there's actually a lot to do for farmers as well. You know, this return to the, what we call the higher of is significant. Another thing is just modernizing some of the formulas for what farmers get paid for their milk. Part of the reason this whole system was set up was to encourage higher quality milk in the United States. And dairy farmers have responded. Right now, they're being paid under formulas based on the milk of 25 years ago. Milk's actually better now, um, and, and not just if you're a consumer and you're thinking it's tasting better. It has more protein. It has better nutrition. It has more things that people want to have. By modernizing these formulas, that actually helps the price for the farmer to the point where if the processing gets adjusted a bit, 
it works for the farmer as well because they're getting something. You know, this is something we have back with a lot of data. We're doing a lot of preparation, hoping that USDA can accept our plan and that we have a, a hearing on this to put this into effect. Um, so we got to be prepared. We've done all of our homework. And we think we've come up with something, which, by the way, our board of directors unanimously supported last March, that, that we can get the whole nation behind. And, and that's exciting, but it's a lot of work, and it's a pretty delicate balance that you have to have the pieces moving together. You do, and you mentioned at the end of the day, USDA has to accept this plan. Alan, what's the timeline for these for these negotiations look like over the summer? So we have submitted our proposal. We submitted it on Monday. That starts a 30-day clock for USDA to decide what to do. We are hopeful that they will have a hearing on our entire plan. Now, when I say hearing, it's not just a one-day thing. They can call a lot of witnesses. They can do a lot of stuff. We would be hoping to see that later in the year. That then sets up for a producer vote, because one of the interesting things about the federal milk marketing order system is, is that producers actually have the final say. Farmers have a say in their own destiny. This is the power of the co-op system. This is the power of our industry. We think some, we have something you know, already representing two-thirds of the milk. We think we have something the entire dairy community can get behind. Alan, of course, the next step as you talk more about this, you're talking to fewer dairy producers, more of a broad consumer audience. What would the consumer impact of any changes to the federal milk marketing orders be? You know, it turns down to a lot of supply and demand, right? You know, it, when this happens, you have something that, you know, helps boost the price for the farmer and also helps the amount for the processor. You could see, you know, depending on how profits get absorbed or such, there might be a short term effect on the price of milk. But what happens then is supply and demand take, takes place. And, and now you have new incentives for the market to, to act better, right? That processor now has more funds that they can invest in a new plant. They can advance their capacity. You know, the farmer is actually getting a fair price for their milk. This allows them to make better investments. I think the end, the end result of, of this modernization is a stronger, more solid industry that will be able to serve the consumer better and actually lead to more demand for dairy farmers product in a healthier system that actually has a benefit for everyone. And in the end, the person at the grocery store too. Alan, of course, National Milk Producers Federation written about this extensively. Where should folks go for that information? nmpf.org that is our acronym and this is our passion fantastic folks we've been speaking with alan bjerga he's the senior vice president for communications at the Mil national milk producers federation and alan as always we appreciate your insight on these complicated topics thank you and folks stay with us when aoa returns we'll be digging back into the health of the rural economy with dr jim Minter, the director of the center for commercial ag at purdue stay here for more aoa Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Granton, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the grain and oil seed markets, first off here on this Thursday, giving back some of the gains that we saw on Wednesday after the reported drone strike on the Kremlin and the continued ongoing concern about the Russia-Ukraine conflict as Russia's come out blaming Ukraine, then later blaming the United States for the drone attack as well. And that has been, of course, denied by the U.S. government. But nonetheless, all of that news drove the markets higher on Wednesday. We're giving some of that back, though, here on the day today. 
Weekly export sales were disappointing again with a net cancellation of 12.4 million bushels reported for corn, and that's related to the previous cancellations from China. Thursday's drought monitor showed slight improvement in a small part of the southwestern plains, but also an expansion of abnormally dry conditions in Missouri and Illinois. Something to watch there. Crude oil has stabilized a bit after dropping in recent sessions. We're holding just below $68 a barrel with the stock market, the Dow, 270 lower after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates 25 basis points after their two-day meeting wrapped up on Wednesday. Overall, these markets, we see corn really four to six lower, soybeans seven to 11 lower, and the wheat trade is mixed around unchanged. Meantime, cattle trade is up slightly here as we see that beef net sales for the week, 20,100 metric tons were up noticeably from last week. Meantime, pork net sales, 49,000 metric tons were down 9% from last week. While we see hogs are trading moderately lower here in our early action. Cash cattle trade looks like it's pretty much done for the week as we've seen moderate business Tuesday and Wednesday. Overall, fairly quiet day across the commodity market trade and the outside markets as we continue to watch news headlines. And in the case of the grains, continuing to watch the weather forecast for the weeks ahead. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Gentlemen, AOA continue here today. And earlier in the program, we were speaking with Matt Clark of Terrain about some of the distinctions and the differences that are happening between the rural economy and the broader economy. And next, we're going to quantify some of those distinctions with the Ag Economy Barometer. Joining us now to discuss it is Dr. Jim Mintert. He's the director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture at Purdue University. Dr. Mintert, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Mike. The Ag Economy Barometer had a modest improvement in the month of April. Jim, what was it that had farmers feeling a little bit better? Well, that's a good question. I think it was partly a consideration with respect to maybe a little better outlook with respect to interest rates. You know, we've been tracking people's perspective on interest rates for several months. And if you compare the responses we got in April versus responses we got back in the winter, back in February, for example, uh, fewer people were expecting interest rates to go up. Um, there was still a majority that thought interest rates were going to go up, but it wasn't as large a majority. I think in uh, February, maybe three-fourths of the people in the survey thought the interest rates were headed higher. Uh, that was dropped back to about two-thirds uh, on the April survey. And fewer people expect, the, among those that expected an increase in rates, fewer people were expecting a large increase in rates. So I think that helped a little bit. Uh, certainly kind of fed back into their perspective on financial performance for their farm looking ahead. Uh, they became more optimistic about that. There was a little more optimism about short-term farmland values. Uh, that short-term farmland value index has been declining, I think, five months in a row until April, and it actually jumped up, I think, 10 points. And I think a lot of that was probably keyed off of an expectation that interest rates weren't going to go up as much as people perhaps thought earlier. That makes sense. Maybe they could see the the cost of money take a breather. Jim, you mentioned this is a survey-based barometer. I, we should have jumped into this first. Tell us, how do you compute the ag barometer on a month-on-month -month basis? So we do a survey of 400 farmers every month, and it's not the same people. We have a big database of commercial-scale farms uh, that we tap into every month. And 
Uh, we pose five questions at the beginning of each telephone survey, and we use the responses to those five questions. Uh, we compute essentially five individual indices, and then we compute an aggregate indices, and that's the ag economy barometer. Um, and the way we maintain consistency across months, people always are concerned about, well, how do, if you're not talking to the same people, how do you know you're being consistent? We stratify who we talk to based on enterprises. So uh, just as an example, every month, at least 53% of the people in the survey have a corn and soybean enterprise, 19% uh, have beef and so on down the line. So we talk to people who have uh, corn, soybean, wheat, uh, beef, pork, cotton, uh, and dairy enterprises. We don't try to focus on people who produce the specialty crops. Some of those people wind up in the survey, but it's because they produce one of those primary crops or, or livestock categories. All right. So we've got the entire bunch represented there, Jim. And then, of course, uh, the next survey is going out shortly. Broadly, as you think of the issues that are, that are impacting rural America, what's going to be on the mind of, of producers here as you look forward? Well, as I mentioned, over half of the people in the survey every month produce corn and soybeans. And given what's happened with corn and soybean prices the last few weeks, I think that's going to be a big factor. Um, the negativity there is probably going to show up, at least that'd be my expectation. And of course, we've got a lot of volatility, right? We're still faced with a lot of uncertainty with respect to what the trade flows are, a lot of uncertainty with respect to China. We've seen some cancellations of sales to China. That's being reflected in commodity prices. Tremendous uncertainty with respect to what's gone in the Black Sea region. Uh, Ukraine's ability not only to, to move the existing crop inventories, but their ability to plant a crop this spring. So a lot of a lot of risks there, a lot of uncertainty. And then on a seasonal basis, you know, we tend to see an improvement in prices uh, normally in that mid to late spring time frame. That's heavily dependent on what takes place with respect to crop conditions. So I think all of those factors are going to come to play. And then, yeah, on top of that, you add in, well, the Fed yesterday announced they're raising the rates, but only by a quarter point and gave some indications that maybe they're going to have a, a rate pause. And so that'll be interesting to see how that plays into sentiment uh, when we do the May survey. It will. And Dr. Maynard, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays into the question you ask in the survey, is now a good time to make large investments? Could we dig into that a little bit? I understand a majority of farmers are still a little hesitant to pull the trigger on some large outlays. Yeah. So I think that we have an index that's based on a question which says, is now a good time to make a large investment in your farming operation? Then we go a little more specific and we say things like farm machinery and, and, and new construction. And a high percentage, over 70% of the people in the survey continuously tell us that they think it's a bad time to make a large investment. And I think it's important to make a distinction there because I think what we're picking up is the sentiment about whether or not now is a good time to make an investment. Clearly, when you look at things like farm machinery sales, people are willing to make some investments. So there's a little bit of a dichotomy taking place there. Uh, people don't necessarily think it's a good time to make an investment because they can't get a good deal. In fact, the follow-up question that we've been asking since last summer is, if you think it's a bad time, why do you think it's a bad time? And overwhelmingly each month they're telling us it's because of the high prices for machinery and new construction. Uh, the interesting thing is the secondary factor, rising interest rates has become more important. Um, last summer, I think only about 14 to 18% of the people in the survey were concerned about rising interest rates with respect to its impact on making investments. These last two months, that's up to roughly one third of the people in the survey. I think this month it was 33%. Last month it was 34%. So interest rates are definitely on people's minds. And that's one reason why I think what uh, the Fed does and what interest rates do are probably pretty important with respect to um, uh, what sentiment's going to be going forward. And the yeah. corollary to that, Mike, I think is we're starting to pick up some concerns about what's going on with regional banks. And I think we're going to try and learn more about what's taking place there uh, among producers in terms of whether or not the banking crisis is perhaps having some impact on the ag sector. It's certainly changing the way money is flowing around in the investment world. And Jim, you know, it's interesting. You highlight the the change in focus on interest rates over the past few months. And I think here over the past few months, we've probably completed renewal season. I'm guessing a lot of growers have maybe seen higher interest rates on some of their operating and, and more short-term notes, wouldn't you expect? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think you could see that a little bit. We were doing some questions last uh, last summer and last fall. And you could tell that people weren't really in tune to what was taking place yet. And of course, as you get into the tail end of the, of, uh, the fourth quarter and then spill over to the first quarter, that's when it really starts to hit home. And for a lot of folks, 
Um, the real impact will be felt when they start to look at their income statement here at the end of 2023 and recognize what a big change the interest rate environment has had on their net income. That's true. It's been a cost of practically nothing for the past 15 years, and now it's uh, something somebody might notice when they're taking a look at the balance sheet. Jim, all of that in place, of course, this plays out to folks' future expectations. You measured a current indices of current expectations and of future expectations. Talk to us a little bit about how growers are feeling today versus how they expect to be feeling down the line. Are we still seeing a pretty big divergence? Yeah, those two indices are kind of interesting in relation to each other because we've had long stretches where people were more optimistic about the future than the current situation. And then more recently, it's been the opposite. You know, if you go back to late 2020 and early 21, uh, pretty consistently since that time, people have been more optimistic about the current situation than the future. And then here in, in late 22 and the very beginning of 23, they were pretty much matching each other. The interesting thing that took place this month was we actually saw a little larger increase in the future expectation in, uh, index than we did in the current condition index. They were both up this month, but future expectations was up a little bit more than, than the current condition index. And it's going to be interesting to watch that over the next few months and see if that continues, if people start to become more optimistic about the future rather than the current situation. The current situation, of course, has been driven by very strong net farm income here these last two years. And that's made people pretty feel very good about their current situation and less so about the future. But from a longer term perspective, when you think about things like land values, a lot of that hinges on what people's longer term uh, future expectations might be. And that certainly makes sense. Of course, that's uh, predicated on the farm financials performance. And that's another indices that you compute here in the Ag Economy Barometer, farm financial performance. Jim, could you tell us what that is and how it's figured? And then what should we how can we what can we learn from that uh, index? Yeah, so that index is based on one question. It's based on a question that says, uh, what are your expectations for your farm's financial performance a year from now? Um, or actually, for this year relative to last year. And this month's reading became a little more positive. Uh, the reading was 93 versus 86, so it was a seven-point improvement. And you compare that to last year, it's pretty close. It was, I think, two points below a year ago, but well below where people were two years ago. And I think, you know, thinking about two years ago, right, we were looking at very strong commodity prices and input prices hadn't really taken off at that point. So people felt very good about that situation. So it's interesting that that Farm Financial Performance Index improved. Again, I think that might have been keyed off of the improved interest rate perspective among producers. Um, and again, as you look at what that index might do in the month of May with a downturn in, in key commodity prices here these last couple of weeks, I suspect we'll see that index perhaps move down a little bit. That would make sense. Jim, before we let you go, of course, you also track expectations for long-term farmland value. And of course, that's a lot of wealth across rural America. Do folks still believe there's upside in farmland? Yeah, so both in the short term and long term. So we ask about farmland value two ways. We ask about their outlook 12 months ahead and five years ahead. And we call the, the five-year ahead long-term. I suppose that's more of a medium term in some respects. Um, both of those indices remain positive. Uh, they're both uh, a little less positive than they were previously. The short-term index is actually quite a bit lower than it was a couple of years ago. Um, this month's reading was 123. I think I mentioned earlier that that was up 10 points compared to the prior month. But if you go back two years, that index was at 159. As long as the index is above 100, that means more people expect values to rise than expected to decline. So it's still positive, but not as positive as we were last year this time or two years ago. So a little less optimism, uh, but still cautiously optimistic. And long term, uh, really didn't change this month. And people tend to re remain relatively positive about the long term outlook as well. All right. Tailwind still at the back of agriculture, even as maybe some margins are being squeezed. Dr. Jim Mentor, uh, director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture, joined us there. Folks, stay with us. Dennis Smith will join us when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. 
because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues this morning and the price tug of war in the cattle market also continues here today. Packers are cutting back their kill, trying to need less on the spot market, and cattle feeders are passing on bids, hoping they can get that higher cash cattle price down the line. Joining us now for an update on the industry is Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. And Dennis, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, you're welcome, Mike. Good morning. Well, let's start here, Dennis, with an update on the cash trade in the cash cattle market. Have we had substantial numbers trade hands so far this week? Yeah, there's been a fairly active cash trade. It broke loose on Tuesday. Uh, lower prices, not sharply lower in the Southern Plains, 171 to 172. Uh, call that down uh, $1 to $2, a little bit of a wider range in the north anywhere from 175 to 178, um, 172 to 179 in Iowa. Those prices are probably two to four lower. Uh, so you're seeing some weakness in the cash market. Uh, but shoot, uh, understanding the 400-point break in June futures in three sessions is pretty difficult to explain. It is. Does it open up a vacuum to the upside, Dennis? I guess is my question. We get this kind of a rapid sell-off. Does does that mean we could see a rapid repurchase? Oh, yeah. This is a fund liquidation. Open interest has been dropping like a stone. Open interest yesterday was down almost 6,200 contracts. The day before, I think open interest was down 3,700 contracts. So, the funds are just exiting right into the commercial buyers. Uh, the, the negotiated trade in the cash has been a 59,000 head. They need to buy a few more cattle. Beef export numbers were excellent. Um, in my opinion, Mike, the break has absolutely nothing to do with the beef fundamentals, everything to do with, with fear and uncertainty surrounding the, the Fed continuing to raise interest rates and the uh, the banking crisis that seems to be sort of unfolding again. That certainly makes sense, Dennis, that broader market fear adding nervousness here into the cattle trade. But on the fundamental side, I keep hearing reports that packers are indeed cutting back their kill. Does the numbers support that? Are you seeing that data? Well, they're managing the kill. They're, they're just kind of uh, handling the slaughter uh, and, and keeping the beef up, and margins are positive. Uh, Mike, as long as margins are positive, they have no incentive to cut the kill severely. Uh, the Packers are doing great right now, even though cash steer prices recently were at record highs. So uh, they, they are controlling the kill. They are not cutting it back uh, drastically. Uh, if the kill is going to drop from here forward, it's because there's no cattle. Right, which is that ongoing issue the industry's been grappling with, Dennis. Are we seeing the slowdown or the managed kill put any upward pressure on box values? Well, wholesale beef has been up in the new recent highs. I mean, we are seeing wholesale beef prices for almost every primal cut at record high territory for this time of year. Uh, so, so, yeah, the, the wholesale beef has been powerful strong. On the feeder cattle side, Dennis, we've got a little bit of weakness here in corn today. We've got ongoing weakness in the futures market on the feeder side. What's that segment of the industry keeping an eye on right now? Well, the, the front month feeders are now pretty much par with the feeder index. Uh, we've seen a, a, a tremendous push for very lightweight feeders. Uh, they've really exploded in price, but that's not reflected in the CME feeder index. Uh, the index is is comprised of uh, heavier weight animals, uh, you know, say from uh, 800 to, to uh, 900 pounders, maybe a little bit of 750 to 900. Uh, the, the strength in the feeder auction barns has not been reflected in the index because, because of the way the index is calculated. Uh, the weather pattern, to, what needs to be watched closely is the changing weather pattern in the southern plains. If they start getting rains on a more regular basis in Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, you're going to shut off the cow kill and placements will drop substantially if they start getting grass down there.
Dennis, you mentioned the cattle kill. We have seen exceptional culling of this mama cow herd. We have had lots of lean ground beef coming on the market. Is that trend still in place or are folks getting excited now that we've seen some rain across the Southern Plains? Are they holding some of those mamas back? No, I don't think so. I think they're still in a full liquidation mode. Uh, it'll take uh, uh, more of a, a change pattern in the weather to, to convince that to stop. I mean, they've got to have grass, and so far that's not really the case, at least not yet. All right, Dennis. So as we watch this futures market performance here over the next couple of weeks, it sounds like fundamentally the beef side has that bull story well in hand. Is the outside market story going to overwhelm this cattle rally that we've got going on, these bank weaknesses and interest rates and inflation? Yeah, boy, if I can answer that question, we would all be uh, in Florida on a yacht, huh? Uh, I cannot answer that. I don't know how this uh, banking situation is going to unfold. What I do know is uh, typically the commodity market bottoms out, as shown by history, on the last rate hike. And we've just experienced the last rate hike by the Federal Reserve. Typically, commodities bottom out when that happens. All right. So now we just have to watch and see if that history will indeed repeat itself this time. Dennis, before we let you go for producers looking at these high dollar feeders, are you doing anything to manage that risk today or are you just letting them ride? You have to let them ride. I don't know exactly how to manage that. Uh, uh, we, uh, You do have a, a big premium. feeder. The feeder board is just the opposite of the live cattle board. You've got, uh, shoot, October feeders trading uh, uh, just under 230 versus a feeder index around 204. We've been establishing put spreads in the August feeders to provide a measure of protection. It is incredible to see this, folks. That's Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. Tune in tomorrow. We'll talk with soybeans or fighting for in this next farm bill. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home? And you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701.